Our story begins 25 years ago, in a distant land filled with magic, anthropomorphic beavers, conflicted dragons, and all sorts of other fantastical creatures. Every intelligent creature in the world heard The Voice, a psychic broadcast that promised unlimited wealth and power to whoever could break the Seven Seals. The Voice sparked a brief golden age of adventuring, with people of every cut of cloth traveling around the world trying to find out exactly what these Seven Seals were. Then war broke out between the dominant nation, the Red Kingdom, and the Unjanath, a secretive, isolationist culture of elves who lived in a forgotten, far-off corner of the world. That war waged on for nearly 20 years, with no one understanding how it started, until finally a peace treaty, brokered by Princess Ravello Red, brought an end to the hostilities. The princess disappeared shortly thereafter, and then the Unjanath retreated from their home, that remote corner of the world known as the Outlands. That brings us to today, where the Outlands Exploratory Company seeks to catalog the Outlands and uncover its secrets, discover its true nature, battle the powerful foes that live there, and simply try to stay alive week from week. Welcome to the Outlands. Uh, my name is Christian Hoffer, uh, and uh, this is our uh, pilot episode of Tales from the Outlands, a uh, Dungeons and Dragons recap podcast. Uh, I am joined by Luke Herr, uh, who plays in our Outlands campaign. Uh, and uh, how's it going, Luke? It has been an interesting day, but we are not here to get bogged down with... Uh personal life details uh i am also the producer for the podcast so that is why i am here along with i am a player in the game who has gone through two characters so far yes yes and we'll talk i'm i'm on my second character i have not killed two of them yet yet is the the key word there um so let's let's talk a little bit about the D D game that we play in and why we have decided to make a podcast about it because this is a little bit of an unusual podcast usually when you think about a D podcast it falls into one of two categories um there are the let's play uh D podcasts uh your critical roles your adventure uh, zones um or and all yeah. the many um many great D podcasts you you run a D let's play podcast don't you luke Yes, I was about to uh, say I run one that is called RPG Pals Club, which is at rpgpals.club. Thank you. Thank you for... And that that, that paid for our pilot episode right there with all that glorious ad money. Um, And then the other type of D&D podcast that you see running around is, uh, you know, the the let's talk about the game itself. Um, You know, uh, whether it's D&D, like talking about D&D news or talking about D&D lore or or simply talking about the actual game of Dungeons and Dragons, uh, how to play it, how to build characters, things of that nature. And this really is neither one of those. This is a podcast about a very unique 
D&D game. Uh, we decided early on that we weren't going to stream it for various reasons. It wasn't that sort of game, but people do seem interested in it. Um, to talk a little bit about myself for a second, I am a uh, games writer for comicbook.com. And I actually cover Dungeons and Dragons on a professional scale. Like I'm a I'm a D and D journalist. And when I talk about this um, this game that I play, you know, my one of my major campaigns, a lot of people have a lot of questions about it. And so we decided we should talk about it and kind of put it out there beyond uh, the Twitter or uh, the occasional uh, article uh, on my site. Uh, we we should kind of talk about what goes on in this weird campaign so why is uh the outlands campaign so unique well it's inspired by a uh kind of a classic variant of a dungeons and dragons campaign called the west marches now the west marches uh first appeared online back uh, i think 2004 2005 and the difference is, is usually when you are part of a D&D game, uh, you are playing with one group of adventurers. So there's like four or five, you know, uh, up to like maybe six or seven of you. And you're playing and you're telling a story that goes from different place to different place to different place. And there's all these crazy plot twists and stuff like that. A West March's campaign is a little bit different. It's very focused on exploration. You're exploring a world, but you're part of a player pool. So instead of being a part of an adventuring party uh, that's set every week, there is a wider uh, group of characters. Now that could be 10 players. It could be 20 players. It could be 30 players. And it is up to the players to decide where they want to go and what they are going to do there. So the responsibilities of the dungeon master is a lot different than it is for the usual game, which uh, kind of is crafting a narrative to go along with the player choices. There are aspects of that in the Outlands, but it is much more uh, driven by the players. What do the players want to explore? What threats do the players want to try to combat? What groups do the players want to befriend? And what groups do the players want to piss off? But this isn't directly like a West Marches campaign, because uh, if you if as you as we talk about this, you'll go, huh, that's not how a West Marches campaign works, because very early on, actual adventuring groups began to like coalesce like naturally. And we currently have three basically set adventuring parties with six players apiece. Uh, there is some crossover from time to time and they play in the same region and each group's their decisions and their actions not only have an impact on the world, it has an impact on what the other what happens to the other groups as well. So it is kind of this very big sprawling campaign. Every time the group always starts off from a, a home base called the outpost, they pick out their location and then they they travel there and see what's there to find in in that world or not that world in that location. The other thing that we do that's kind of unique is, as, as I've said multiple times, it's built around exploration, and we have exploration roles. So the, it covers kind of the act of traveling, because quite frankly, traveling is kind of the worst part about Dungeons & Dragons. It really is. It's, it's one of those things where if you're making maps, you have to either go really detailed, or if you're not making maps, it's just random tables. Yeah, and uh, we don't use either one of those. Uh, the exploration roles kind of stand in for that. 
And these are like optional, ch these are checks that each player has a different role. So uh, for instance, uh, Luke's character is a halfling uh, named Cleaver and Cleaver usually forages. Um, so because she is a, uh, a cook of some renown at this point um, who really likes using exotic, uh, exotic ingredients sometimes to um, uh, the detriment. So, yes. Thank you. Uh, sometime to her detriment. And uh, yeah. So when she's traveling, she'll make a foraging check to see what, what sort of food there is. Um, sometimes uh, she, she might find an interesting uh, ingredient for one of her meals. Uh, sometimes she might find some sort of magical plant uh, that can be consumed. And if, she fails her foraging check, maybe the party has to pay a little bit of gold for the extra supplies they have to utilize. Or maybe nothing happens at all. And so we have uh, six distinct roles, including foraging, that kind of build out the map a little bit. Sometimes people, uh, sometimes the players will find interesting locations on their way to uh, whatever site they're exploring. Um, sometimes they'll meet new NPCs. Sometimes they, they, they might face new threats. And it, it kind of serves to, as a great way of foreshadowing. And it also serves as a way to remind the players that this is a world that is alive. And it, it's a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. So right now, uh, and this is, this is what my favorite part when I talk, tell people about the Outlands campaign. Currently, we have 18 players. And they all play weekly. Uh, we play three nights a week in groups of six. Each group is distinct and has its own personality and its own uh, motivations. But we play three nights a week, and we have very little absences or, um, uh, you know, uh, it, is very, it is very much an active campaign. It is definitely a benefit of the world that we are living in. Yeah. Right now. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that this campaign would have been possible in normal times. Uh, I've been, like, percolating this idea for about two years now. Um, as a, like, I, I am an always DM and I've been wanting to try West March's campaign out for a while. And, uh, both Luke and I, we, we live in Columbus, Ohio, and, um, we are part of a, uh, a, a community that we could probably get a decent chunk of D and D players. And, you know, so that was my original idea. I was like, oh, this is going to be like the Columbus game where like one day a week, anyone who shows up you know, that that's what we're going to do. And instead it turned into this, this monstrosity of a game for lack of a better word. <laughs> so, you know, we're, we, we, I recognize that we're kind of, you know, this, this isn't going to last forever, but at the same time, I don't think that we're going to, when we go into like the normal times again, I don't think that too many of the players are going to want to stop there. There will probably not be 18 players showing up every week but we'll probably still get like 12 or 15. Oh yeah. I have not had this much investment in a character or characters before. Normally D&D has been something where it's like, oh yeah, let's get together. Let's roll some dice. Or if it's Pathfinder, it's let's use the best min max character builds that I found online on Reddit. And no, I mean here, my first character was awful stat wise but he was fascinating to play and cleaver is just a horrifying delight 
Yeah, Cleaver. Cleaver is uh, a, a real blast to play, and we'll we'll talk a little bit more about her uh, in a lot more detail in a upcoming episode. So let's talk a little bit about how this podcast is going to work. So we've talked a lot about what this D and D, what the Outlands is. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what we're going to do in the podcast because. If you're still listening, you're probably wondering, how are they going to talk about their D&D game every week? And how would I, a random listener, get invested into this world? We kind of envision this as a kind of like a quasi-campaign guide um, for people to um, dig into the Outlands. Um, maybe bits of it makes it into your D&D game. Maybe you start your own Outlands game. And if you do, please, please tell me because that... That would be the best thing in the world. Um, we're going to talk about the characters that occupy this world, uh, both the player characters and the non-player characters. And we're going to talk about what makes this campaign and this world so unique. And it's not as much the world itself that is super unique. Basically, um, to spoilers, it's very planescape uh, for old school D&D players. It, it's got a lot of planescape and it's got a lot of... Um, uh, Midgard, which is uh, the world created by Cobalt Press. Uh, it's It's got a lot of elements of those. But think of this more of a, how do I build a, a D&D world? And how do I make it come alive? And how do players react when they find themselves in those worlds? And our hope is that this will provide some insight about an interesting D&D campaign. And also give some insight into the players who play not only in my D&D game, our D&D game, but also so you can see uh, how players in any D&D game kind of think and react to these type of exploration games. You know, we're, we're kind of promoting a, a different way of looking at D&D games beyond the mechanical. You know, this is not going to be a very mechanical D&D game. This is, uh, or D&D podcast, this is going to be a more... Um, for lack of a better, it's going to be an exploration of a D&D game, which is very much in tone with the Outlands. So, I suppose since this is our pilot episode, we should probably catch you up with what we've done in the campaign so far. Um, this campaign uh, began uh, in early April of 2020, and we've basically uh, have loose seasons of play. Uh, where uh, basically a, a plot line emerges that kind of serves as the backdrop for everything that goes on in the world. Now, that doesn't mean that every session is focused on whatever like the major threat is or you know the major plot line, but th th themes will kind of organically appear and um, resolve themselves. And we kind of called those seasons. So the first season was uh, what we called the Goblin War. And it really focused mostly on introducing the Outlands and its mysteries to the players and giving the players a little bit of a chance to decide what they wanted to do in the Outlands. Um, so, you know, think of it as um, almost like a buffet. Uh, and you, when you make your first trip to the buffet and you see all the different options there, you sample a little bit and then you decide what you actually like and then you go back for more there. So that that's what the 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 first season of the Outlands was. And the um the central th uh, the the kind of like the central 
revelation that occurred in the season was uh, we mentioned in the intro about uh, that there was this big war that broke out between the Red Kingdom, which is kind of like your um, uh, almost like Imperial Britain um, without the nasty colonial stuff. So, you know, kind of like the dominant world power without the subjugation and the racism. And um, this group called the Unjanath, which is the secretive elven culture. And these aren't all the elves that, you know, all the Unjanath were elves. Not all elves were Unjanath. And, you know, that that was something that I had to explain to a lot of players in this campaign because because of how D&D lore has traditionally been set up. It's like all elves are this or all dwarves are that. I, I feel like they've gotten better, though. I mean, now in 5e, we've got the Wood Elves, we've got the High Elves, we've got the Drow, and there is a bit more variety over what those can be as, like, sub-races. Yeah. Well, and, and they have made an active attempt at moving away from that, especially in the last two years. Um, mm-hmm. But making an active attempt to move away from those and we'll call them what they are they're stereotypes even though they're mm-hmm. fictional stereotypes they're still stereotypes um the wizards of the coast the people who make D have certainly made an effort to, to start separating the game from those like you know the idea that all elves are behave a certain way but there's 45 years of game history plus there's also fantasy like the general ideas behind high fantasy that they kind of have to combat too um you can say like yeah no our game's not going to feature stereotypical dwarves you don't have to play as you know Gimli the dwarf every time you you roll up a dwarf that doesn't mean players are going to listen to you at all Um, no and i mean there is a level of value in a shorthand but it I think this has done a good job of showing that, oh, no, it's these are their own culture, but there is dissidence within the culture. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Yeah. And that's that's one of the things that's come up. Uh, I guess we'll start talking about the Unjanath. So the Unjanath are um, the descendants of an even ancient, uh, an even older culture um, called the Sharn. Uh, and the players don't know a ton about the Sharn. They spoke their own language. Um, they seem to have been led by literal gods, uh, one of whom may or may not be dead. Um, and the Unjanath are kind of like the descendants of that, the ancient people, the first people to live in the Outlands. And the players learned, and we'll talk, they, this gets picked up on, this is a major plot thread in season two, that the uh, Unjanath, while they are all elves in the present day, they were not always that way. There used to be human Unjanath. There used to be uh, dwarven Unjanath. Uh, I'm sure there are other, you know, fantasy races that were involved with the Unjanath. But at some point in time, only the elves remained. And that's like one of the um, kind of lingering questions. It's not like one of the central questions, but it is certainly, you know, s- something. But anyways, that's that's talking about the Unjanaths, but the uh, the the players learned a little bit about that in season one, but they really mostly dealt with uh, two major threats. Uh, the first was Nob Nozzle, the Goblin King, um, who was this very vicious uh, goblin who led a literal goblin army and kind of um, actually pressed his own 
people, these innocent goblins who lived in the Outlands, into joining his army. And what Nob Nozzle was trying to do with that army is still a little bit unclear. But whatever it was, it wasn't good. And he had no problem killing his own people. Uh, in fact, uh, like a good solid like third of uh, Nob Nozzle's forces defected once the Outlands Exploratory Company kind of like made contact with them and um yeah so you know and and now one of the side things about that is uh the the outpost where all the party members live is majority goblin uh most most of the residents a majority of the residents are goblin um so that culminated in a a uh, goblin war between the company and knob nozzle which we'll talk a little bit in a second about how that worked because that is the other distinct thing that we do in the outlands is we actually have multi-night events but yeah so the players had to deal with knob nozzle and the other kind of major threat they had to deal with were the suhuigan now the suhuigan are these like classic D creatures they're like basically um uh fish people they're you know kind of uh fish people um gilgan yeah i i was gonna say they're 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 yeah they're gilman i was gonna say they, they've got a little bit of a lovecraft vibe to them you know with the uh like the 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 deep spawn but this particular group of suhuigan uh, hail from the elemental plane of water. And they uh, came over and the party learned about this after the fact. And I don't know if it, uh, you you were on that mission. We'll, we'll talk about that yeah. in a second. Um, but uh, so they came from the elemental plane of water and they established a colony here in the Outlands. And the party and one of Luke's first adventures, they raided uh, the party members, uh, raided the Suhugans like central base and stole these fragments of uh, one of the seven seals. And that uh, had a ripple effect. It, it actually cut the Suhugan off from the elemental plane of water. And the Suhugan tried to do everything to get those seal fragments back. Luke, what, what did you think? I know this was like six months ago. Uh, but when you, when you went into the sunken temple and started fighting the Suhugan, what were you expecting, and uh, would you have, knowing what you know about the Sahuagin now, would you have done anything different? So that was back in the uh, core times, and it was something where we knew that we were heading to the Sunken Temple, but didn't really have an idea of what we were going to find in there. We found two prisoners, one of whom was fine, the other who was the first hint of the Abolith. Yeah, oh, that's season two. Yeah, and then we went and headed into this big battle with a massive, like, water portal that was open. And we found the Shattered Seal priests and a bunch of Sahu again. And it was just like, oh, okay, well, we know we need to get the seal because it's a bad thing for them to have because they're not on our side. And so we pretty much just slaughter them and then hightailed out and then suffered their wrath until their numbers got whittled down enough by other threats and them constantly trying to skirmish us. And uh, it's, it's hard to say if I regret what I did in character back then. <laughs> Because, I mean, Kor was very upset when his friends started to get threatened and also he got beaten up enough uh, 
to have to use magical powers, and we'll, I assume, get to that in a bit. Uh, but then it was just this slow whittling down to their forces. We started taking captives. Yeah. We also kind of forgot about that for a while. And now we're just sort of left with, oh, well, we killed their priests, so they can't do any more burials, and all the rest of their people are trapped in a portal that we won't open for them because we don't trust them enough, or enough of the party does not trust them to open it, and it's it's a interesting situation. Knowing what I know now, if Core or Cleaver had known that, I don't think Cleaver really would have tried to fight them as much but also they were frequently raiding us they had no interest in peace talks or anything of that nature and it it was a complicated situation it was and that's like one of the things that happens a lot in the outlands is as part of an exploration campaign you don't always go in knowing the whole story um, and that that's okay, you know, uh, and sometimes you're forced to make hard decisions based on what you know. Um, so for this particular mission, uh, the group went to explore the Sunken Temple, which they knew was the base of the Sahuagin, which was one of the groups that was hostile to the company. Now, it was known that they were hostile. This is not like a, ah, uh, I, I believe that goblins are all evil, so let's go and kill them. It wasn't even necessarily a let's go and um, kill creatures sort of thing. Now, they did find out that the Suhugan were conducting some sort of sacrifices. They had prisoners. Um, they had, um, you know, um, they, they, were, they were doing things that were considered to be morally wrong. And so in order to stop that, the party went and stole these uh, fragments, which... In essence, turned Zuhuigan, this was basically like a, a base on, it was a colony. Um, and they, they cut that colony off from their home. And that turned the Zuhuigan into kind of put the Zuhuigan in a desperate situation. And we saw that play out by the summer as the uh, they skirmished with the, the company and various groups of adventurers, which almost resulted in multiple fatalities. There was a couple of like very close calls during those skirmishes. Um, and it almost like, I want to say for like almost two months, every session uh, started with a fight between the Sahuigan and the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and eventually the Sahuigan just ran out of bodies. And so now they're, they're still around in the Outlands. There's, and they, there is certainly reason to interact with them. But um, uh, that was like the first that was really the first uh, situation in which the players realized that not everything could be resolved with a sword or with a fireball. Um, And that um, sometimes when you don't have all the information about uh, something and you're put into these bad spots where, you know, um, your back is suddenly pressed up against the wall, what you do in that moment would have a, a very large impact on the rest of the campaign. Mm-hmm. I I mean, we made the best choice that we had with the information we had, but also as a party, a lot of us have guilt over what was done. Some of us have no guilt over what was done. And uh, like 
where we go from here because now they are left unable to contact their home, unable to bury their dead, unable to really move on with their lives. It's rough. But also they did try and flood the Outlands and had it raining for like four weeks in a row. Yeah, something like that. They they, they created a localized storm uh, about above the outpost, basically trying to rain out the company. Um, and also because they are fish people, they require water in order, they, they need to be in water every so often. So this expanded their um, kind of sphere of influence by creating a, a rainstorm there. Um, so season one ended um, with uh, two very, like uh, uh, kind of two two-part events. First was the party's first excursion with a group called the Shadow Court. And the Shadow Court is, um, they have yet to really make their presence felt in the Outlands. They are not currently one of the major antagonists, but everyone in who plays in this campaign knows of the Shadow Court, knows how dangerous the Shadow Court is, and also knows that eventually they're going to have to fight the Shadow Court. The Shadow Court uh, is um, a group of Mind Flayers. Now, Mind Flayers are one of my favorite D&D monsters. Um, the, the, probably one of the biggest reasons why I play 5th edition so much is because I love Mind Flayers. I, I have to use Mind Flayers as much as I possibly can. And this particular group of Mind Flayers has subjugated and successfully taken over the Feywild through unknown means. Because, you know, the, the Feywild is this place ruled by Archfey, you know, these, these powerful magic creatures of chaos. And so how the Mind Flayers conquered the Feywild and beat these Archfey is one of the big, you know, that is another lingering mystery of our campaign. And there were hints that something was wrong in the uh, in, in the Feywild for a number of weeks. And um, eventually the Shadow Court decided to send a message to the company. And that is how Luke lost his first character. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if if you are going to do it, I was also offering him up on a plate for you before that point. Yes. So... The Shadow Court erected a wicker maze uh, right outside of the groups, uh, less than like a half day away from the uh, the, the the outpost. And so uh, Luke's group, which is known as the Buddy Brigade, uh, decided they they were like feeling really cocky and very um, like we are invincible, nothing can stop us. We can befriend anything. Uh, and they had a series of like very good encounters. Um, and so they decided, yeah, let's see what's in the Wicker Maze. And it started, like, no one, I didn't even expect it to happen. Uh, Luke's first character core got murdered by Redcaps. Um, and Redcaps are basically like lawn gnomes from hell. Um, vicious, bloodthirsty lawn gnomes. And so, because it was such a very shocking and jarring death, like, as I... I'm running this D&D game. I quickly like DM'd Luke. I'm like, Luke, how do you want to do this? <laughs> you gave me the choice between, uh, do you want to be dead or do you want the mystery box? And like I said, I had plans for passing Koran that we'll get into in the future probably. Mm -hmm. But uh, I was like, oh, 
I I have a feeling where this is going to go. Mystery box me. And uh, I stuck a Mind Flare Tadpole in Core's uh, head. Um, so Core uh, underwent the process of ceramorphosis, and um, he it was very slow. Usually, usually ceramorphosis takes about a week, and it's very painful. Uh, we made it last two because the Wicker Maze happened right before our first two night event, uh, which was the Goblin War, uh, which was the company was actually going to attack Knob Nozzle's army, and it was this big clash. And so we had. At that time, uh, we had seven, I think we had 16 players. I forget exactly how many. 16 sounds right. I feel like we had at least seven on each side. Yeah, uh, we had uh, we had like 10 on the first night. We had an insane number. So we did a two-night event. The first night was the main assault, where the, uh, the adventurers actually fought the goblin army of Nob Nozzle. And in that, we had a group of adventurers that was basically, they knew that Nob Nozzle had some way of moving that goblin army really fast and, you know, could summon that goblin army to protect him because he had a secret base somewhere else. And so their job was basically to figure out how that goblin army was moving so quickly and then shut it down, like blow it up. And uh, we literally, I literally gave them barrels of gunpowder to do that. Uh, Core, Core went in because this was the Buddy Brigade mission. Mm-hmm. And like Core went in knowing that, oh, I have a tadpole in my brain. For complicated reasons, I can't do anything. Hopefully no one blows me up. <laughs> uh, my favorite part of that campaign was um, that, that the first night of that event was honestly... One of the, my favorite. I I love our event nights. Like they, mm. the all of our crossovers have been pretty solid so far. This one was basically two and a half hours of combat with ten player characters fighting waves and waves of goblins. There were probably about thirty goblins on the map at any time. Uh, some of which had different abilities. We had like. Uh, like basically mini bosses and every single player in that first night came away feeling like they contributed towards the central goal. There were players who uh, one player, one of the characters in this campaign is a paladin that is very unoptimized, cannot hit anything to save his soul, did cast shield of faith on another character. And that was the tank who nothing could hit him. Literally nothing. And, and, and like, you know, I was throwing literally waves of goblins. He would take 16 attacks per turn. I think I hit him twice. It was insane. It was, it was very epic. You know, we had other players who felt, you know, they, they were going and fighting these kind of like lieutenants of the army. And, um, you know, so that they basically entered into mortal combat. Uh, with a with a mini boss and it, it was basically glorious chaos and it's probably the closest that i have ever come to actually feeling like oh my god i'm actually participating in like a a, a big supersized combat and and it was a it was very successful so that was night one and they they succeeded they found uh these secret t- underground tunnels and blew it up 
The second night was actually uh, a second group of adventurers, uh, which we called the Terror Team, because they are very much, um, if the Buddy Brigade is the open hand, the Terror Team is the closed fist with a sword. <laughs> terror Team is Arrow, Buddy Brigade is Flash, and then our third team is Legends of Tomorrow. Yeah, that's actually pretty accurate. That is, that is a very good description of the three groups. And the Terror Team... Uh, they went and assassinated Nob Nozzle. So they basically did a dungeon crawl in a night, rushing from room to room, fighting anything that they came across, and then fighting Nob Nozzle. And that culminated in the one of the first real encounters, which what is probably the 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 big mystery of the campaign. Nob Nozzle, it turned out, the reason why he had gotten so aggressive and was building up this army was because he wasn't actually Knob Nozzle. He had found a enchanted knife, which he used as a sword, and it, uh, basically the knife took him over. And after they killed Knob Nozzle, Knob Nozzle's body literally erupted and became this m- giant monster. And the, the monster was um, a, a something from a little bit more obscure Dungeons and Dragon lore, uh, a monster called the Faerim. Faerim are these very alien creatures. They uh, resemble wind socks with four arms, a venomous stinger tail, uh, no eyes, and their mouth is just filled with teeth and it has basically flower petals uh, around it. And just the these just bizarre, totally alien monsters. And Somehow, the Faerim are tied into the Outlands' ancient past. And over the and we'll talk more about that, the Faerim, in upcoming episodes. Um, but the Faerim seem to be imprisoned somewhere in the Outlands, and they are literally being held back by the magic of the Seven Seals, one of which was broken. And a lot of people are gunning for those seals, thanks to this mysterious psychic broadcast called The Voice. So that was that that all happened over the course of about three months. Season two was when things really got good and complicated. And that was when we introduced the first real true antagonist of the campaign. Like Knob Nozzle, the players only met Knob Nozzle twice, and the second time they put a sword through him. The first bad guy that they could not directly just like, ah yes, you are a bad guy. Meet my sword was the Abolith Doo-Wop. Now, Doo-Wop is a silly name because I like naming my monsters after silly things, but the Abolith was probably the the most terrifying D&D monster that I have ever used in a campaign. Yeah, yeah. The, the reason why, so for those of you who don't closely follow D&D lore or don't know what an Abolith is, an Abolith is basically a primordial three-eyed fish that predates the gods. Uh, with uh, psionic powers and the ability to actually uh, enslave, uh, uh, psychically enslave other people. Um, and usually, an Ablith can only do that like uh, a couple times a day. And if someone takes damage from the mind control, it snaps out of it. The Ablith did not have those restrictions. But, you know, it's like, well, as the Avalith doesn't follow the rules. Of course, he's a big freaking threat. But there was a reason why. Uh, the Outlands is this very magical place, and it actually has this, like, powerful 
magical network uh, behind it, similar to like uh, ley lines. Um, if you under, if you like ever follow weirdo magic theories, um, and so the Ableth was tapped into that and basically could mind control people and enslave them uh, at his leisure, and he went on a freaking rampage. Um, so the Ableth was originally imprisoned in uh, these ruins located on the es- eastern e- edge of uh, the first region of the Outlands. Like, uh, th- we have a hex map, and initially I had uh, made 19 hexes for the players to explore. And literally in hex 19 were this ruins, uh, this uh, ancient ruins of a city called Untol Valara. And uh, it was built around this massive lion's gate, a gate almost basically like a giant uh, rectangular doorway that stands hundreds of feet high and it has winged lions um, carved into it. Uh, Now, the city itself was, you know, destroyed long ago. And um, the big question of season two, because the players just couldn't help themselves, they kept coming back to the city over and over and over again was what happened to the city. The Avalith Doo-Wop is what happened to the city. Doo-Wop had somehow gotten to the Outlands and had started to manipulate the populace of that city. And so the Unjanath, and this was Untal Valara, was an Unjanath city, and the Unjanath decided, Avalith, we don't know how to stop the Avalith, so we're going to blow up the city. And we, we, they figured out a way to imprison the Avalith, and then they blew up the rest of the city. And the terror team accidentally unleashed the Avalith back into the Outlands. And for months, for about two months, uh, the Avalith was an ever-present threat. And the agents of the Avalith, because that happened back in Season 1. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. We, we uh, So it was even longer, because that was from, I think, if I had to take a guess and i have all the dates down and i didn't have it up here because i didn't know what we were going to talk about because this is the pilot episode it was before we stole the seal of water because we found one of the aboliths uh minions if i remember or no no that was later on that was later on after a core turned because we we found the weakness which was the abolith much like christian sometimes could not come up with names for the npcs it was controlling Yes, that was, that was, um, uh, I got the lines, let's see here, Lionsgate, nope, that's not it, <laughs> uh, we, we actually, you, you may ask yourself, how the hell do they keep track of all of this lore, and all of, all the stuff, we have a Wikipedia, uh, we have a wiki, um, and we're not afraid to use it, um, so the Aboleth, Popped up. Um, I'm pulling it up now. It was June. Um, I think. Sunken Temple, Red Crystal Shrine, Treasure Demon, Goblin Village, Soul Peter, Drowned Fool, Perfect... Ah, yep, July 17th. July 17th was when the Avalith popped up. And he was the basically the major threat up until my birthday weekend, October. In October, which was October 16th, I believe, was when they finally killed off the Ableth. So, the Ableth was this, like, super threat where, like, the p- players could not ignore, like, what the Ableth was doing. Because the Ableth was, like, picking off NPCs. Like, you know, NPC wanders off into the woods, a 
guaranteed that it was going to be part of the Ablith army. And um, uh, the players learned that uh, there was a way to cut the Ablith off from like this, this magic that was giving him superpowers, basically. And uh, it was, they could find a crystal, you know, they, they, they needed to basically find these like naturally formed crystals that could be found somewhere in the Outlands, uh, purify it, and then stab the Ablith with them. Um, and over the course of that mission, a couple of really terrible things happened. Uh, and it was missions. It was like multi-part, like multiple sessions were dedicated to trying to like purify these crystals. The first was the party may have accidentally given the Ablith an opening to uh, wipe out an entire culture within the uh, within the Outlands. There was uh, we had a group of bee people called the Tuscali, which were also pretty hostile to the party. And it turns out that the reason why they were hostile was because they were trying to protect a seal and that they were hostile to the one group that was really an ally of the company, which were beaver folk, uh, which are literally anthropomorphic beavers. They knew that the beaver folk were secretly in league with the Aboleth. And that the Ab and and this was one of the big twists of the campaign was, you know, they the party knew that the beavers were building a dam and they were planning on building this big artificial lake. The reason they were building that artificial lake was to give the Aboleth a place to live. It was one of the most shocking betrayals. Very sad. Top tip anime betrayal video. Yeah, the, the beavers were the bad guys all along. And it was a little bit more complicated than that. Only some of the beavers were bad guys. But it was still just heartbreaking. Well, you see, there's beaver folk and there's beaver kin. And the difference is that one of them is based on the North American beaver. And one of them is based on the European beaver. Yes, that is actually, that is exactly, that is is literally how we played it. There are good beavers and there are bad beavers. And if you know your beavers, you can tell the difference. It gives us an excuse to say beaver a lot in the campaign, which I'm a fan of beavers, um, the the actual rodents. Um, I grew up with beavers. Um, but anyways, so the Ablith, uh, basically, they found out that their only allies were working with the Ablith, and then they found out that these bee people actually weren't the bad guys, but when the party, uh, the people the tuscali had a hive mind and when they uh entered into the hive mind to try to communicate with them the ablith had previously mind controlled one of the party members and used that latent connection to take out the bee people's hive mind um and so that that took out the entire culture of bee people in one foul swoop Eventually, the the party successfully created the anti-Aboleth weapons, and over the course of another two-night event, they fought and defeated the Aboleth. Uh, one group, uh, and this was a, a mission that I, if I could take it back, I would have done it differently, um, just because uh, I tried to do too much with not enough time. If I had four hours, it would have been great, but I had two. <laughs> Um, but basically, they got chased by the Ablith. They were trying to escort a dragon for reasons to... Uh, the, this dragon was a sapphire dragon named Moradin, and we'll talk more about him later. But Moradin was basically serving as the um, running interference on the Ablith's psychic, constant psychic attacks against uh, the people of the Outlands. And so 
Moradin needed to be placed in a certain magical location in order to continue uh, successfully running interference. And the Aboleth chased the party and the dragon for several days. Um, but that drew the Aboleth out, and that gave the terror team a chance to then kill the Aboleth. And in the course of that fight, we lost a second player character, who was our rogue Sisatrix. And she unfortunately did not survive the fight. She got ripped apart by crab folk. It was very sad. Very sad. Should have gone for that conch. Yes, we had a, uh, a perfect uh, perfect conk. Uh, the crab folk... We'll talk more about that later. We're, we're yeah. already running close to an hour, so... Um... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I also realized we didn't really explain what happened to Core after Sir Morphosis. Oh, yeah. That's something for a whole nother... Yeah, let us just say that uh, Kor uh, is still a part of the Outlands, but he no longer plays for the good guys. But he is also not playing for the Mind Flayers, interestingly enough. He is playing, he is affiliated with a different group, one of the many factions that we'll talk about in the next few episodes. Um, So after the Ableth was taken care of, uh, the party turned their attention to the Lion's Gate itself, this big empty doorway and they eventually found out that it led to the elemental plane of air and they um for reasons which we will talk about later they entered that gate during a three night event because by that point in time we now had three distinct adventuring groups our legends of tomorrow yes uh they call themselves the tune squad they play on tuesdays and so we did a three-part event to basically enter the Lion's Gate and retrieve another seal that they knew was located on the other side of the Lion's Gate in the Elemental Plane of Air. That mission was successful. Uh, that literally just happened last weekend. It, the, the event ended, we are recording this, on a Thursday, and that event ended on a Tuesday. So two days ago. Uh, how did you think that event played out? Oh, right, you're asking me. Uh, I think it was kind of fascinating because we had one group that needed to open the gate and they apparently had a cluster cuss. I was part of the second group that actually went in to retrieve the seal and beyond trying to speed run so we missed a lot of important treasure we could have gotten, it went pretty well. We didn't follow instructions well enough, but we walked out with the seal and then the last group had to deal with keeping uh the gate protected from whatever might come in or out of it we drove out in our bone mobile dunked that seal into a bank and then we found out that oh uh our base has been attacked and uh we don't have a lot of details especially who out of the 600 residents or so that we had had died back at the outpost but uh our shards of the seal of water and then the second seal that we got from the Tusculi are now gone. Yeah. So uh, during, uh, I, I, we forgot to mention that, the uh, the Tusculi had one of the seals and when they, they basically had their hive mind turned off, the party uh, took that seal uh, with the, you know, they, they actually are also protecting the, uh, the hive mind itself so that the hive mind has time to reset and when they made second contact with the hive mind, the hive mind's like, yeah, take take the seal, keep it safe. Well, that seal got stolen. Uh, the outpost is wrecked. Multiple NPCs are dead. And I'm actually 
this Sunday we are going to find out who because one of the characters, uh, one of the players in our our group actually runs two different characters and well, a few or like two do yeah Darcy also yeah my wife my what well Sai Darcy's first character my wife uh, is uh, her name is Darcy. And uh, she retired, kind of semi-retired her first character. She played and she wanted to play a character that would give her an excuse to um, be a little bit more passive because she uh, was pregnant uh, during the beginning of this campaign, gave birth, and now we have a seven-month-old. Um, and so it was like, okay, well, if I need to take care of the baby while we're playing D&D, I should have an in-character excuse. And it was, she made a good character, but she, it was a fighter, and she just was really bored with her. So she retired Psy and made a new character, which is basically, a, as I refer to her, a Disney disaster princess. Um, a lot more fun for her to play. Another player uh, runs two characters. One is an artificer uh, from, a, from uh, Eberron, literally from the D&D campaign, uh, D&D campaign setting Eberron. Then he plays a rogue named Yuria, and Yuria stayed behind at camp while Kovir, the artificer, went off on the last weekend's mission. So Yuria is around in camp, and Yuria will basically have a chance to maybe save a few NPCs on Sunday. So we'll find out how that works out. We have about 30 or so named NPCs whose lives are on the line, and I was planning on killing off between 15 and 20 of them. Uh, most of the most of the outpost is probably going to get wiped out, but maybe maybe they won't. We'll find out. We will show you. We will go to a city and offer gold for people to move out here. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that's basically what we've done so far in the Outlands. Um, I know that was a little bit of a rambling uh, discussion about what our campaign is like. Not every episode is going to be like this. Uh, we are starting season three this weekend. We're going to try. Did we decide we're going to do this bi-weekly, right, Luke? Uh, yeah, we'll we'll see how it goes. I mean, I now have a lot more free time. That's that's true. So we're we're going to release these uh, episodes on a regular basis. Um, season three, um, obviously, they have to deal with the fallout of uh, what happened to their poor camp and probably kill the people responsible for them. In fact, mm-hmm. one group, uh, they have decided to start the revenge tour on Friday. There are lots of other threats that are uh, popping up in the Outlands. It seems like um, every about once a month, uh, a new threat pops up. Mm-hmm. There's this clockwork army. Uh, there's a strange entity called the Bone Taker. Uh, there's this mysterious religious organization called the Arms of Paradise. Um, there are the Feyrim. Um, there are... Um, lots of other uh just different entities they're pirates we have pirates that we haven't even they were supposed to be uh the season two threat and then the <laughs> abolith showed up and i was like oh well there goes that there's also the party's learning a lot more about what the outlands is uh we've talked a little bit about the different planes of uh you know these elemental planes and it turns out that the outlands is actually a confluence of the planes which means that any one of the many planes of Dungeons and Dragons can actually intersect into the Outlands. And that's why like um, the Outlands has such a varied ecosystem and also why uh, so many things are attracted to it. So in future episodes, we're going to talk about what happened in some of our recent sessions. Uh, and we're going to do some deep dives into like some of the different areas, some of the different cultures. 
And we'll talk a little bit about what makes those cultures unique and how when you look at like different factions uh, in your D&D games, how you make those cultures uh, and these factions recognizable and things that your players actually want to interact with. Because I've, I've played in a lot, I've run a lot of D&D games and, you know, you know, I'll come up with all this like great lore, but what I think is great lore and the players are like, oh, that's nice. Um, and so we haven't had that problem with the Outlands. I'm frankly, I'm kind of amazed that, of that. Um, I mean, you you have said several times. Oh, I was expecting you to go here months ago. Yeah, it's true. Um, and well, but that's like that is one of the fun things about the campaign um, is that you know um, there are lots of secrets there haven't yet to be discovered. Um, there are cats for the cat god. That's for the cat god. Yeah, we will. We'll talk a little bit more about that. So, and we're going to bring in some of the different players who play with us, and we're going to talk about their character, what they foresee, you know, what their favorite parts about the campaign are, um, what they want to do more of, and basically kind of like look into your dean, you know, your kind of your typical D and D player's mind when they're talking about their favorite campaign. We've been we've been talking now for about an hour. Which mm-hmm. I feel is that's a pretty good length for a podcast, especially as there's no commutes right now because we're, um, you know, stuck in pandemic land. But if you have any questions, feel free to get in touch with me. You can find me at Twitter. I'm at Seahoffer Seabus. I talk about this D&D campaign and the other D&D games I play and about D&D in general a lot on Twitter. So if you have any questions about the campaign, you just want to reach out and say hello, uh, say that you actually listened to the show. Uh, that would mean a lot to us um luke where can they where can they find and interact with you yeah i am luke Hare, l-u-k-e-h-e-r-r you can find me on twitter at at coltreg that's k-o-l-t-r-e-g you can also find all of my shows at luke Hare, l-u-k-e-h-e-r-r dot com uh right now weirdly enough if you've noticed this is part of the unbearable weight of nicholas cage and other podcasts uh it is part of a podcast pilot program slash portfolio that i'm running if this gets picked up it will no longer be under that but uh that is why it is in a weird show where you can also find me talking about nicholas cage movies or doing some actual plays but yeah all of that is on my website i also write comics and do a bunch of other things i can also be hired to produce podcasts for you just feel free to reach out about that lucare at gmail.com but yeah that's that's all i have i'll keep it simple okay well thank you so much once again for listening i hope that you uh, decide to come back for a second episode and uh we'll talk more DD next time so until then uh happy adventuring everyone see you in the outlands